Without the ones like you, who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. This episode is brought to you by the Device and Virtue podcast. I'm Chris. And I'm Adam. On Device and Virtue, Chris and I argue about the wrongs and rights Christians face with technology in everyday life. From smartphones to evangelism chatbots. To that selfie stick Adam shouldn't have bought. It's nice. Subscribe at deviceandvirtue.com. This is Troy and Joel, and this is Revived Thoughts. And let the way be long or short, the Christian pilgrim will walk all the more cheerfully and with all the more success if he knows of a brother going the same way himself. Every episode, we bring you a different voice from history in a sermon that they delivered. This week, we're doing a little bit something different, something that is it's not our typical format of the show. And this came from Troy. He came to me and he said, Joel, I, there's, I, I've come across a, a neat thing. When we do research for the show, we're constantly Googling and messaging libraries and figuring some stuff out. And he said, well, I want to try something else yet. I want to, I want to explain to you what I've found while researching for a sermon. And that's as much as I know currently. So we're yeah. kind of doing this kind of off the cuff right now. And I'm a bit curious to hear what Troy's uh, got, got to say. Yeah, this is not our normal style. So if you're, we have new listeners streaming into the show very regularly. And if you are a new listener, I want you to stick around and enjoy this episode. I think it's a good episode, but I do recommend you go back, check out some of our other episodes that we've done so you can get an idea of what it normally sounds like so that this is not your only impression. But if you're a regular listener, this is a little different. I think it would help to explain how I got this sermon because you were listening to, we said this once in a while where we'll have an episode where like, this is the only copy of this on the internet. Uh, David Livingston, uh, George Matheson, and William Muir today. Now, the name William Muir, uh, he's, he's a gentleman from Scotland in the 1800s, and I thought that that was enough information to find the guy I was looking for, who was a uh, missionary to India, and he had done a lot of stuff there. And he, there was a little bit of confusion because there was another gentleman named William Muir lived around the same time, and he was kind of like a, 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 you know, a theologian or philosopher or something. And I ended up with a third William Muir, <laughs> who is this other guy's sermons. And, you know, when we're looking for sermons and stuff, I we're always, especially trying to find interesting sermons, interesting characters, and we always really want to find missionaries. And so when I saw an opportunity to find somebody who had lived and worked in India, had been influential, I was wanting that guy. And what I was reading through when I realized I had a, I was excited to read this sermon by this guy, I realized I have a completely different guy here sure. because in the biography I read, he never makes it to India. In fact, he doesn't <laughs> make it very far at all. So so they live during the same era. All and three of them are from the same town. Christian. They were and they both... Are they, were they all missionaries? Uh, no, only one of them was a missionary missionary. And then this other guy, kind of, you know, he, he does go to a foreign country to preach, but, you know, I don't know how much he's not, he's not reaching a lost group per se. Sure. And so was that just a really 
popular name in that era, at I guess. At least it was for these three. I don't know. And and the thing is, you can't. There's no Wikipedia article the, on this third guy. Were they all from Scotland? I guess they were, and okay. they're all from. So this, it must be a good a good hearty Scottish name. They're all coming from the same area, and they all lived at the same time. But the William Muir that we're focusing on, the less famous of them. So I find this book. It's in the Australian Digital Library. Right, you can look it up. Um, and I read his biography, I copy down a sermon, I send it out to a guy that I want to record it. And, you know, and I don't think too much of it. This is, you know, it's a rare one, but we have rare ones on the show. I didn't, I didn't think much of it. When I get back the recording from the gentleman we send it to, we have some troubles with audio and stuff. This sermon uh, was started about a year ago, and it's only just now getting out. And we had some troubles with the audio, so I went back to kind of check on the script, though, wasn't sure if I was going to use it. And that book is gone. It just, Australia had pulled it out of the digital out of their records. library. So now the only recollection of this guy's life is the one I'm going to tell you right now. I'm the only one who knows it. <laughs> I mean, I guess somebody <laughs> could check it out in the library, but I doubt that's happening. Um, so this is one of the only ones you're ever going to, again, it's one of the only, it was just good timing that God had let me get that book when I did, because if I didn't and I hadn't read it and I hadn't learned it and been interested in it, we wouldn't have it today cool. to tell the story. So William Muir is born in the early uh, early 1800s, and I wish I could tell you the exact date, but I cannot because it's in that book somewhere. And uh, he's born in the early 1800s, and he's not the world's healthiest gentleman. He's always kind of got a little bit of a cold, a little bit of a sickness, but he is your classic prodigy. He's really, really smart, and he does very, very well. Um, his doctors recommend, they say, hey, we think a good idea for him might be to go to Egypt um, and kind of learn there, kind of maybe study in Egypt, do schooling there. It's a warmer climate than Scotland, and so it might help him with his condition. And so they go, okay, let's send him to Egypt. He does very well in schools there, and he and it does. His condition does get better. The health is a good climate for him. And he's always interested in kind of wanting to be a missionary maybe to China. His mind is kind of, you know, a little bit like Oswald Chambers, like I'm in Egypt, but I kind of see myself going off into the foreign mission field somewhere else at the very least. But he would have been happy to go back to Scotland. Kai does great. He knows his Latin. He knows his Greek. He's very studious. He goes back to Scotland for just a time, just a hair, just to kind of get reacquainted with family and stuff. And he gets sick. And we're talking so, so sick that he he just, he's coughing up a lung. It is not going well. So the doctors, again, we talked about this before on the show. Back in those days, one of the very, you know, prescription could be go live somewhere else. Right. And so they go, you need to move somewhere things aren't looking like it's going to be a good time for him to go to Asia or anything like that. So they go, well, what if we send you um, to Australia? And there's a church there, a little bit, a very small church and kind of a town there. It doesn't have a minister right now. Uh, you know, what do you say? And William Muir has a wife at this time. He's married and he goes, well, let's, you know, we're going to go. We're going to see what we can do. Go and serve the Lord in Australia. And so he hops on a boat makes the three-month sail across the world, and he arrives in Australia. He meets his congregation. His congregation really hasn't had a full-time preacher in, in a hot minute, as you would say, and it, they're ready. They're excited. And he gets up and gives some kind of precursory speeches. They're not quite sermons. He's not quite yet the minister. There's a process. He has to be ordained. They have to agree on him. So he's going through it, but everyone is rooting for him, but he starts to get sick again. And in that fact, he's actually sicker here in Australia than he was in Scotland. Whatever whatever was causing the problem that didn't happen so much in Egypt, it's getting worse here in Australia, and it's not looking good. Despite that, the congregation rallies around them. They're like, no, we know you're sick, man, but you're our guy. You are preaching God's word. You're faithful. We love 
how much effort and, and heart you have for us as a people. We want you to be um, our minister. And they, he said there were times he couldn't get out of bed. There were weeks he couldn't really do anything. He was useless. And yet the congregation was was paying his wages. They were happy to support him. They were taking care of his wife. I mean, if you've ever been a, if you've ever moved somewhere for a job, but I mean, especially if you've ever done that in ministry, you know how hard it is making that first impression. And he was, this is his first time as a pastor. And yet his first impression is just, I'm sick and I'm ill and I'm doing everything I can here, but I'm struggling. It must've been very humbling and challenging for him during that time he gets the he gets ordained and uh he preaches a sermon on what it is what is what is a pastor supposed to be you know like what am i as a pastor supposed to do who who, what is it you're calling me to do here and that's the sermon we're going to listen to today and it is also the only sermon he ever preached because after that he gets too ill he's too sick to continue on and he will um he will send he will basically his his brother is kind of in town he says hey brother you need to uh you know he takes his wife he says you guys go on to scotland winter's coming i'm gonna winter here and i'm gonna meet you guys back in scotland as much and maybe see if i can get some doctors to help me out and the wife agrees um and then when she kind of leaves the room and stuff at some point he gets a moment with the brother alone he goes tell her i'm down to die (laughs) like i'm not i'm not making it to scotland this is the end I would tell her myself, but I know she would stay until I died and she wouldn't be able to leave Australia and she needs to be with family. And this is not, there's no home for her here because I'm, I'm not going to make it. She, they leave and about a month later he does die and he doesn't, that, that was the only sermon he ever preached his entire life. Wow. And he doesn't really make the list of historical sermons, world's greatest preachers. Um, we only know this sermon because the congregation really loved this guy and really thought he had a heart. So they wrote down some of his speeches that he had, and they wrote down like his official sermon, and that was this one at the back of the book. They told his story. It was his dad who uh, eventually would come to Australia, kind of collect his things and you know the memoirs and kind of help them publish the book. Which I can just, I mean, imagine a dad going to where your son died in his early twenties. That would be a heartbreaking thing to be a part of, and seeing that love probably helped a lot. And uh, they published the book, and this was the book that showed up by accident or for whatever reason on the Australian Digital Library that confused me. They read the story, <laughs> I thought it was great. Do you think about how your iPhone affects your daily life as a Christian? I'm Adam. And I'm Chris. And this episode is brought to you by the Device and Virtue podcast, where we argue about the wrongs and rights of technology and faith in everyday life, from DNA tests to TikTok videos. Give us a listen, and this fall, check out our new online seminary course. It's called Theology of Technology, Church and Culture in the Age of Zoom. Find out more at deviceandvirtue.com. Maybe in the in the idea of revived thoughts of the world's greatest sermons, the sermons clearly, you know, wouldn't be necessarily probably in that line of thinking. No one's thinking, well, what about William Muir? Well, you know, we got to put him up there with Spurgeon and Bonhoeffer and Edwards. But I think he does, this one does a really good job of symbolizing the many, many, many sermons that faithful people of God have preached that died a little early or that will never be remembered because they didn't get written down or that they were great sermons that moved people. But for whatever reason, either God calls them home a little earlier or they just aren't going into those annals. You know, we know about guys like Spurgeon and Edwards and Luther and Calvin, 
There's so many faithful men of God preaching whose stories we will never really know, whose sermons maybe even could be just within reach, but uh, they weren't written down or they're sitting on a dusty library and haven't yet been put into the internet or they're blocked off. Who knows what it is? And I just thought that his story really does a good job of encapsulating all the things that can happen that keep you from knowing and hearing some of the probably greatest sermons ever preached will never will never be able to hear. Yeah, that's one of the things that we love about this show. That's one of the things that gets us excited to record the show, to do research for the show, uh, is that we we never know what we're going to find. And it's really neat when, especially in this instance, where, again, there's a few others like this, where this is the only place you can find a digital resource with with these sermons, with this content on there. And it's real neat to, especially in the vein and in the in the spirit of the show, to take something from the past and be able to preserve it and make it available for free to the public to be able to to listen to and for it to participate in our generation. You know, mm-hmm. when it otherwise never would have been, it yeah. would have been forgotten forever. So uh, it's kind of neat that we can kind of nitpick these things and find them throughout time. Uh, and it's it's also. Uh, just as much as what the show is as a Charles Spurgeon episode or, uh, you know, a Bonhoeffer episode, the little guys that we don't know about that we can discover and and celebrate with and participate with their view of the Bible, their view of God, their view of Christianity in a different pocket of time is, uh, is what we love to do on this show. So uh, let's, without further ado, jump into it. We are ambassadors for Christ, 2 Corinthians, verse 20. In appearing before you here for the first time as your ordained pastor, I cannot help feeling that I do so under a double disadvantage. With the commemoration and charges of Thursday evening still ringing in my ears, and my heart still vibrating with the seriousness and responsibility of the night's proceedings, the idea of me being here and standing before you has me trembling and terrified. I pray to God that I might quickly overcome it. In the very first steps of our working together as pastor and people, I had to throw myself on your indulgence and sympathy. Indeed, it is because I felt assured of your kindness that I have been strengthened to appear at all. The subject to which I desire to turn your attention to is of a minister's duties and also in respect to the manner of discharging those duties. This subject is one which has already, to a greater or less extent, been brought up before you. But so often in recent years has the pulpit and its occupants been the object of harsh criticism. The attacks upon the church have been so fearless and sweeping that we, beginning life as a congregation together, cannot be far off and will be all the better fitted for the work before us by investigating for ourselves the teaching of Scripture in the matter. For here, as elsewhere... Our appeal must be to the law and the prophets, the message and example of Christ and his apostolic followers. Some years ago the cry was raised, and it is being continuously reiterated that the church, and especially the pulpit, is on trial, and that if it hasn't fallen from the position of influence it formerly occupied, it at least needs to vindicate its claims to be respected by the people. And it must be acknowledged that the course of social and national progress within even the last half century has been such as to have considerably altered the relationship between the church and the world, 
having dispensed with some of the functions once undertaken by the preacher, while on the other hand, it insisted upon a much higher degree of faithfulness and merit in the discharge of those duties that remained to the minister. At a time when the newspaper press was in its infancy, a general literature almost unknown, and the power of reading as limited as the opportunities for its exercise, it often fell, and perhaps rightly so, within the preacher's sphere to discuss the events of the day and to answer public questions on these matters. Such discussions and references naturally gave a freshness and a tasty aroma to the pulpit deliverances that made them attractive to the audience. And this attached a power to the hand of the preacher, respected and sometimes even feared by the politicians of the time, and for the same reasons, the scarcity of literature and the limits of education, the religious teacher thought himself obligated, even outside the matters which were more properly belonged to him, he would enter into discussions with limited investigation and a lack of detail that made every sermon a complete dissertation on the topical point at hand. At the same time, it must be added that 50, 30, and even 20 years ago, there was a more universal respect for things sacred than these days. There was a simplicity of faith, a willingness to receive instruction, and a readiness in applying it in ordinary life. Even though it was combined with a strictness amounting almost to dogmatism, it compares favorably with the impatience of authority and thirst for something new so characteristic of our own times. But society has changed, and the charge against the pulpit is that it has not adapted itself to the new age. The newspaper is now everywhere. Literature of every kind and quality flows unceasingly from the press. Everyone reads, and everyone has a more or less intelligent understanding of the problems and issues of our day, whether they are religious or scientific. And yet it is sad that we are too often treated to the same heavy dissertation on doctrinal questions without reference to their bearing on life. Too often are our sermons characterized by qualities which would not be tolerated in any secular assembly and would be completely barred from being admitted into the composition of any respectable publication. Too little do we receive the kind of instruction which would help us sustain in the midst of our cares and troubles. Teaching that stimulates us to live better as Christian men and women in the midst of worldly affairs. The pulpit, in short, does not reach us. Or if it does, it is only to irritate us into the opposition over something, or it may occasionally please the imagination without nourishing the heart. I must say, even at the risk of speaking my own condemnation, I sympathize very largely with much of what is being said against us. There is, of course, a class of people who have representatives everywhere, who complain for the mere sake of complaining. These who, having heard the cry by others, echo it without much perception of its foundation. If their views with the regard of preaching were realized, it would be far less productive of good than the old system was. These are people who would have sermons to be speeches on moral themes, so general as to apply to all without touching any. And a discourse showing the weakness of man and the almighty power of the gospel would be offensive to them. They insist on the most talented productions and will give themselves little or no trouble to induce the entrance of talent into the church. With these, none should have any sympathy, and their complaints should safely be allowed to pass without notice. But with those who are striving to live the Christian life, to do the will of God in the sphere in which they have been placed, and to fail to find in the services of the sanctuary that edification, that food, so to speak, for which their souls hunger, one must sympathize. 
It may be said that the failing may, to some extent, be on their own side. But if anyone comes regularly to the house of God with the right desire and does not feel himself made better, more enlightened, more strengthened in soul and spirit, then the charge must be laid largely at the foot of the minister. It can't be charged against the message. There's no lack in the Bible. And although it may be impossible in every sermon to meet every individual need, if the services of the sanctuary are conducted as they ought to be and accompanied by the Spirit's blessing as they should be, not one person will go away empty. The preaching of the Word has been appointed by the Lord Himself as a means for the conversion of souls and the edification of the saints. It has been abundantly promised His favor and blessing. If faithfully and earnestly conducted, there is an earnest effort on the part of the speaker to rise to the full height of his vocation, and on the other side, the willing ear ready to apply it to their heart, it is simply impossible that good will not be the result. How can the pulpit be anything other than a mighty agency on the side of good and right in the land? It is so obvious that the two parties must combine to produce this result. The whole responsibility rests not on the preacher alone, but partly also on those who hear. Each side has its functions. Unless both are honest in their efforts to discharge their duties, the desired result will not and cannot be expected to follow. On a future occasion, I may attempt to place before you what is reasonably and scripturally to be expected from the congregation. Meanwhile, let us give our attention for a little to the office of a minister. First, let's look at the nature of a minister. This is briefly and comprehensively expressed by Paul when he tells the Corinthians, with regard to himself and brother apostles, we are ambassadors to Christ, envoys from the court of heaven, to act in Christ's stead, to supervise, if not finish, the work he himself commenced. Their personality is, to a large extent, wrapped up in the office. They speak not their own name, and they do not proclaim any message that is special to themselves. They are messengers sent by another, and the message is provided to them. Like the prophets of old, they are the mouthpieces of God to men, through whom God speaks his message of truth, of love, and of holiness. Like the men of old, so they should be men of God, living continually in communion with him and the constant subject of his spirit's operation. The ambassadors of Christ, his work and his honor, hold the first place in their esteem and in their life. Ambitious to see his cause advanced, nothing is held back. Sensitive to his honor and glory, whatever tends to detract from it will be resisted, and if possible, stopped completely. Receiving their message and instructions from him and him alone, they must have no doubt or fears even in the face of opposition that is violent. For Christ and Christ alone, they must act and speak. To him and him alone, they look for commands. His approval and his only is their test of faithfulness. This is the nature of a minister. It is representative, not independent. It's not new and original, but secondary and repeating. We preach not ourselves, but Christ Jesus the Lord, and ourselves your servants for Christ's sake. Secondly, the functions of the office are already determined. To act and speak in the name of him by whom they are sent, and to do so consistently with the principles of his character and life, with a single eye to the accomplishment of his desires and purposes. More specifically, however, the duty is defined by Paul in the same verse in which he defines the nature of the office. We are ambassadors for Christ, as though God did beseech you by us, 
we pray you in Christ's stead that you should be reconciled to God. That on one side, God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not imputing their trespasses to them. And now that Christ has ascended to his throne on high, the word of reconciliation has been committed to his ambassadors and the duty laid upon them to proclaim it everywhere. To tell men in a condition of slavery who are sinking into hopeless death of a deliverance accomplished and that their life has been secured. To tell them the freedom from which God makes his people free and the life which will never end. It goes on forever and ever increasing in strength and rising with energy. To arouse the thoughtless and worldly to the shortness of time. To the emptiness of pleasures and instead to lead them to think of the future so that they lay up their treasure in heaven. In short, to tell the sinner of his sinfulness and guiltiness to the wrath of that Almighty, and at the same time proclaim to him now awakened the gospel, to the glad tidings that there is no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. Instead, that in Christ we again rise to the dignity of the sons of the Most High. We are heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ. This is the one great department of the minister's duty as an ambassador for Christ. And the other duty arises directly out of it. The preacher's work is not yet finished when he has brought souls to Christ. Just as it is not enough for the individual to cast himself on Christ for salvation, the renewed and the regenerated nature must, from the moment of the new birth, live for God and Christ. And it is the duty of Christ's representatives in the ministry to lend all the assistance possible to help in this new life. Accordingly, the Apostle says that among the gifts given to men by the glorified and victorious Christ were those of pastors and evangelists, and the object of the gifts he so presents for the perfecting of the saints, for the work of the ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ, till we all come in unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, into a perfect man, into the measure of the fullness of Christ. The distance between conversion to Christ and translation to the full enjoyment of the kingdom and glory may be very small, but usually the path is a long one. It may take one from youth to old age to finish it. And let the way be long or short, the Christian pilgrim will walk all the more cheerfully and with all the more success if he knows of a brother going the same way himself, a brother who has the special commission from the king to guide, encourage, and sustain any and all who may need his help. The Christian soldier will fight the good fight of faith with all the more heart and energy when he feels himself a part of a troop, led by one appointed by the king himself, one who is furnished by him with full details of the campaign, the enemies to be expected, and the best means for their defeat. He knows the tribulations and difficulties of the march, and the true way of meeting and overcoming them. The Christian minister is not only an ambassador for Christ, beseeching men to be reconciled to God, but he is also a general, leading the forces he has mustered to the promised land of liberty and glory. Or to take Christ's own figure, he is the good shepherd who both goes after the lost sheep and also tends to the welfare of the whole flock. Now let us look at the matter in which these duties are to be performed. It would detain us too long to even cite the various precepts laid down in Scripture on this point. But there is one principle prominent through the whole of the history of preaching which deserves our consideration and may indeed be found to embrace many of the other instructions. If, for example, we go back to the prophetic period, 
we will find the representatives of God bringing the truths of the kingdom directly to bear on the lives and the hearts of men living around them, trying by all means in their power to win their hearers from the practice of vice and the service of the world to the God of their fathers. The prophet was, so to speak, a man of his time, uttering God's words to it, and never uttering anything which his immediate age did not need. Then, if we come down to Christ, of whom the prophet spoke, we will observe the same way both in his works and in his words, the former always rising out of present circumstances, the latter always taking shape from passing events, and dressed in language suggested by things immediately around him. And so too the problem of the apostles was how to bring their message to bear on the lives of those whom they spoke or wrote, going back to the past or to the future only when necessary to strengthen their argument or meet the emergencies of the moment. The great goal of the office held ever before them was to bring men to God, to restore that communion and love between God and man which is the principle of the kingdom. Whatever means tended to produce this result were freely employed, and all else was passed by as useless and a waste. And this suggests what is perhaps the most glaring defect in the pulpit teaching of our day, or what at least is the most serious charge against it. The preacher, as it is being said, has been too ready to ascend to a region far above the affairs of common and social life. And although everywhere else the minister proves himself immensely human, yet in his sermons he is taking up an attitude of being out of the reach and sympathy of toiling and suffering humanity. It seems to have been entirely forgotten that the audience were men and women who have duties in the present, and that religion is as much a life as a system of doctrines. This charge, if true, is a serious one, and the wound cannot be remedied too soon if the pulpit is to retain its place and power as a mighty office. The modern preacher must be like the prophets of old, like his master, and like the apostles. He must be a man of his time, living in the present, sensitive to every movement which stirs society. His eyes are open to the events of God's providence around him, and he is speaking out earnestly and fearlessly in language that will be understood to all who hear the truths with which he is entrusted. The doctrines of his faith he will not shun, but he will deal with them so that his instructions are easily put into practice. The past will not be left behind, but will be presented as occasion demands and opportunity offers to illuminate the path of our present duty. The joys and terrors of the future will be employed in the same way, to bring men to Christ, to sustain, encourage, and stimulate those who have already come. These are, as we have seen, the two great aims to be steadily kept before him. Any and every means within his reach calculated to accomplish these aims of the preacher is permitted. Actually, he absolutely must employ them. No theme could be wider or give greater scope for every variety of human talent. No education can be too extensive as long as it is made usable for the congregation. There is room for reasoning, both common sense and profound. Use the whole universe of nature and the entire range of history and all the biographies that need to be drawn upon for their illustrations. Accessories such as these are not to be ignored and their absence is that which is largely, largely frowned upon. And yet, all of this must always be kept in subordination to the central object. Learning logic, illustration, the most polished and masterly discourse and eloquence of words with passionate speeches may please men for the moment. It may even exercise their minds or delight the imagination, 
but unless they are made the channel of sending home some living truth, understandable and appreciated by the human heart, they will prove only like the blooming tree before a wintry wind, beautiful for a season, but soon gone, never to be remembered, and with no hope of fruit forever. There is no work in this world more glorious than that of seeking to save the perishing, as acting as Christ's representative, while at the same time there is none to which a responsibility more solemn and momentous is attached. We are from God, says the Apostle, a sweet fragrance of Christ in them that are saved and in them that perish. To the one we are the fragrance of death to death, and to the other the fragrance of life to life. What reward could be more gloriously transcendent? And even though it feels far into the future, so calculated to encourage us to the hardest toils, than the prospect of hearing at the great day of the Lord, one and then another and another ransomed soul point to you as the human channel of his salvation. And what responsibility is bound up in the possibility that on the same day voices from the depths of darkness and misery should rise up to accuse him of faithlessness and neglect? On this, however, we may not and need not dwell. It has already been brought powerfully and solemnly before us. So, what have we arrived at as a result of our investigation? I think this old picture, drawn by John Bunyan, contains the various lines of character we have found to meet the minister of Christ. You may remember that in the house of the interpreter, Christian was shown the picture of a very serious person hung up on the wall. And this was that look of it. It had eyes lifted up to heaven. The best of books in his hand, the law of truth was written upon his lips and the world was behind his back. It stood as if it pleaded with men, and a crown of gold did hang over his head, and this was the interpretation. The man is one of a thousand, and where you see him with his eyes lifted up to heaven, the best books in his hand, and the law of truth written on his lips, it is to show you that his work is to untie and unfold dark things to sinners, even as also you see him stand as if he pleaded with men, and where you see the world cast behind him, and the crown hangs over his head, that is to show you that he slights and despises the things that are present for the love that he has to hear his master's voice. And he is sure in the world that comes next to have glory for his reward. What character could be more glorious, reflecting the glory of Christ? What work could be grander, finishing the mission of Christ? What sustenance could be more powerful, the sympathy of Christ? What reward is more transcendent, the approval and fellowship and power with Christ? Oh, if ministers of the gospel looked only a little more at the ideal set before them in their commission, and strove a little more earnestly and universally to come up as far as possible to this ideal, to reproduce the life and the work of their master, harsh criticism from the world would soon be disarmed, and the march of regeneration would be so rapid and extensive that even the world would be in wonder and admire it. But sadly, how much easier is it to point out the defects than paint the perfect picture? How much more difficult to perform duty faithfully than to instill it? And when I look at the greatness of the work and the almost sublimity of character on one hand, and on the other hand at the weakness of humanity, tied up by its indwelling corruption and exposed to thousands of adverse influences, we are held down to the earth by frailty and inertia, and it is no surprise that even the inspired apostle exclaimed, And who is sufficient for these things? 
or that a giant like our own John Knox, the father of the Reformation and Scotland's religious liberty, when he was 40 years old, someone pointed to him and said he needed to be working and preaching more. He burst into tears and ran away. It is no surprise, then, that a young man with all the inexperience of youth and the burden of physical illness, in addition to all the sinful temptations of our common humanity, that I who address you now should enter into duties of the solemn office with a fear and trembling that goes beyond words. And yet, thanks be to God, the prospect is not undesirable. We are ambassadors, and as such we have a message. We are envoys and are fully equipped, so that the apostles' dark cry of weakness, who is sufficient for these things, is fortunately for human hope and energy, counteracted by the brilliant ray of heavenly strength. Our sufficiency is God. And I cannot do better now in concluding than to beseech you again in apostolic language. Brethren, pray for us. Pray that the strength of God may be perfect in our weakness, and success will attend to our labors. As Aaron and Hur were to Moses during the fight with the Amalekites, so is the congregation to its pastor. So long as by prayer they hold up his hands, the cause of truth and Christ will be victorious. The moment the voice of prayer ceases and the hands fall, then the enemy prevails. So then, brethren, pray for us. Pray for me. He knew that he might die when he preached this. Like he had to know that there's a chance I don't survive. And he may have even known this would be the only sermon he ever preached. Though I do imagine that he probably thought he would do more than just this one. Um, but he puts his heart into it. He he really outlines what a minister is supposed to be. And he says that, the you know, you could go over all the different things a minister does. But the crux of the matter is, how do I bring the gospel to bear on the lives of people today? How do I make this matter to you? How do I get you to turn away from your sinful lifestyle and turn to service towards God instead? And I think sometimes when we think about what a minister is, who, what a, what a shepherd, pastor, all these things are, we can get into all these details of who they are, get into what their office is and all these different things. But reminding ourselves of that simple truth from a guy who put his heart into it and knew this might be his only chance, and it was, uh, that reminding ourselves that, no, at the end of the day, a minister and, and all of us as Christians are called to tell the world about Jesus, call them to turn away from their sinful lifestyle, to repent and to turn it over to Christ and to live for him. That is what it is all about. And sometimes just getting that that basic idea in your head and moving away from all the other stuff is sometimes a good reminder. I think sometimes we make it more complicated than it is when in reality, what we are called to do here, what we are called to be about as Christians is actually not always as complicated as I think we like to make it. Thank you for listening to today's episode of Revive Thoughts. Today's episode was narrated by Thomas Stewart. Thomas Stewart helps uh, run the Biblical Chili Podcast, which we've we've collaborated with a little bit in the past. If you haven't checked out their show, feel free to go over and uh, search for Biblical Chili. We hope you enjoyed this episode of Revived Thoughts. If you did, we highly recommend you check us out on Facebook, 
Twitter, Instagram. Uh, join us there. We do try to post content, questions, have discussions uh, throughout the week on different things. It was a bit of a lively discussion on something we were doing on the Livingston episode of whether or not uh, marriage should be allowed between more than one person. What would you as a missionary do if you were in that situation? Things like that come up in, in the different discussions and stuff. So if you're not following us on social media, we highly recommend that you do. Um, it's also a great place where you can find a book sharing contest and stuff like that when we do those kind of things too. So we try to provide stuff for you. We, we do recommend that you're on there with us. Uh, thank you so much for listening to Revive Thoughts. This is Troy and Joel, and this is Revive Thoughts. This episode is brought to you by the Device and Virtue podcast. I'm Chris. And I'm Adam. On Device and Virtue, Chris and I argue about the wrongs and rights Christians face with technology in everyday life. From smartphones to evangelism chatbots. To that selfie stick Adam shouldn't have bought. It's nice. Subscribe at deviceandvirtue.com. You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, excursions, and more in one place. There are over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from, so you can find something for everyone. And Viator offers free cancellation and 24-7 customer support for worry-free travel. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.